So this morning, we're going to continue our series that we're calling The Story of God, uh, where we've kind of been exploring the big story of the Bible, um, what people sometimes call the the meta-narrative. You may remember, because we've said this every week, uh, that the Bible, where we get our understanding of God's story from, is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story that lead us to Jesus. And it's that unified story that we're kind of exploring together in this series. Uh, We're taking hold of this idea that the story, uh, though, you know, the story of the Bible, though made up of many authors and many types of literature and different plots and subplots, uh, that actually the bigger picture, the bigger context of the Bible is, is God outworking his plan amongst us. And ultimately, we, we're doing this because we want to be a church and we want to be a people who embody God's story here in a place like this, here in a city like Milton Keynes, that we want to find ourselves in the midst of God's story. You know, that when you wake up tomorrow... You don't just wake up because you've got to go to work or school, although that's what you are going to do. But actually, when you wake up tomorrow, you wake up in the middle of something. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to the book of Matthew, says we we wake up in the middle of something that God has been doing uh, for centuries. We wake up in the middle of God's story, a story that he's been outworking from generation to generation, a story that has purpose. Now, as we've been talking about the story of God, we've broken that story down into kind of four sections, or if you like, four acts of a play. Uh, And those four acts are creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration, or the renewal of all things. Now, for the longest time, uh, and if you were brought up in the kind of the wing of the church that I was brought up in, for the longest time, Christians are focused on those two central um, plots, fall and redemption. And whilst those things are true and important to the story, when we focus just on those two parts of the story, we end up with like a a truncated or a half story. Uh, It's a bit like, we said, showing up to um, a film 30 minutes late, you know, and if you've ever done that, you'll know you're kind of like, you're kind of left guessing what's going on. You know, you miss all those key character forming moments. You, you miss that point where the story is set and uh, you kind of understand the purpose of what the story is about. So it's a bit like showing up to a movie 30 minutes late, but it's then also like leaving a movie 30 minutes before the end, where you fail to see the true outcome of the story. And, and as a result, because we've done that to God's story, we've often reduced the story that God tells to sin and forgiveness. Or as um, Dallas Willard says, the, the gospel of sin management, where, where people pray a prayer for forgiveness and then we warehouse them in churches until they die. Um, <laughs> that we, we kind of have this, this kind of mentality. And so actually... Uh, as we saw right at the start of this series, God's story doesn't start with sin, which is a bit of a surprise to some of us. It doesn't start with sin, it doesn't start with the sinner, but it actually starts with God and a God who creates. 
the story starts with creation. And you might remember when we looked at the story of creation, God said his creation was good. That wasn't, that wasn't a trick question, but he said his creation was good. But like all good stories, they, have to, they often have moments of conflict or crisis. And we saw last time we were together that it doesn't take long for that to happen in God's story. In fact, it's the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. Everything goes wrong. Where we see the the goodness of creation and the, the harmony of humanity living in relationship with God and with one another starts to break down. And, and as we said last time, the reality is, is that it's this thing that's not that popular in our culture, but this thing called sin enters the story. Now, that isn't simply just because rules were broken, but actually it's because relationships get broken. Humanity gets separated from God and one another. And sin and brokenness and shame and pain and destruction enter God's story. And if he was with us last time, it felt a bit depressing, didn't it? That, that this is where the story gets to. It gets to this point. I, I likened it to the fact that, you know, Han Solo gets frozen in carbonite and, and, um, and, and Luke gets his hand chopped off by his dad. You know, the story feels hopeless and, and you know, it's not going to go on from here. What's going to happen? But actually, this is the point where we get to today. And I guess the question we might have is, what's next? After all, uh, after everything that's gone wrong, after all this brokenness that's entered into God's creation, after sin has come to distort the harmony of what God has done, after the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity, those made in his image, uh, made to share in his goodness, after they have messed everything up, what could possibly happen next? And you know, it's at this point of the story, we really have to lean into three things. We have to lean into this idea that God is still on his throne in this moment. God is still on his throne. He's still in control and he's not done with his creation. He's not done with his creation. And no matter how messed up things get from this point, that's good news. That's good news that God is doing something. And so it's at this point of the story where we begin to think about the redemption, the third third act in our play, if you like. And uh, we think about this idea of God rebooting things. And so God is in this process of rebooting his story. The first humans, Adam and Eve, have messed things up and God is looking to reboot. Now, what kind of reboot could God do? Now, we could, we could just think, oh, well, everything's totally messed up. It's, it's a complete mess. Let's just start again. Let's just start over. You know, a bit like, you know, the latest Marvel or, you know, uh, DC film where, um, you know, we didn't quite like the way the story was going. So, you know, we're going to make Ben Affleck Batman instead. You know, um, we're going to take the story in a different direction. We're going to improve on how how that story was going. We're going to tell the story of how Peter Parker became Spider-Man in a slightly different way. Um, And and so maybe God could do it like that. He could reboot the story. Maybe he could just screw it all up and throw it all away. 
just start completely over. You know, just begin again. But he doesn't do that. Instead, God looks at his options and he chooses to redeem this story by going looking for a people. And in looking for a people, he chooses a person who will represent a generation of people who will live out the redemptive story of God. And so as the very people who messed the story up, he goes back and he says, okay, guys, let's clean up this mess. Let's do something together. Let's rewrite the direction that this story is going in. And so we see this process take place through um, this strange concept uh, that the Bible refers to as covenant. Now, we don't have anything in our culture that looks quite like this. I guess the closest thing that we have in our culture would be marriage. Uh, but we're just going to pause and I'm going to play a little video uh, that introduces us to this concept of covenant. And then we're going to dive into one of those covenants. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. 
The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea... And so what I want to do in the kind of brief time that we've got this morning is look at that second covenant in the Old Testament with this uh, character called Abraham. Now, we haven't got lots of time to look at the life of Abraham, but there are a few things to note about Abraham. Uh, Abraham, um, when he's called by God, is actually like a pagan moon worshipper. He's not your obvious choice. He's, you know, he's not running around serving the God um, of the universe. Uh, not only that, uh, but he's old. He's like really old. And, um, uh, and God says to him, I'm going to make you the father of nations. And, and through your family, uh, through your offspring, you're going to bless all the earth. And ultimately, you're going to help me rewrite the story. And, 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 and what we see is that Abraham, as he begins to cooperate with God, and, and God begins to make these promises to him. And if we had time to go there, uh, we, we, we could look at this. But it's fasc- this fascinating thing. In Genesis 3, where we was last time, in Genesis 3, there are five curses as a result of the fall of humanity, humanity rebelling against God. And... Um, And then in Genesis 12, as God calls Abraham and he begins to rewrite the direction of the story, Abraham receives five blessings. And, you know, I I might be oversimplifying this a little bit here, but it's almost as if God is saying, for every time brokenness enters into the story, for every curse that was issued, I want you to know, I've got your back. I want you to know I'm turning this thing around. I'm going to restore things to how they were. I'm going to bless you. And it's that blessing that God releases upon Abraham that eventually transfers to the whole of humanity, where God himself begins to reverse the effects of that thing we called the fall a couple of weeks ago. He begins with Abraham, but he extends it to all of creation. So if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 15. And we're just going to look at this covenant. um, This covenant that Abraham had with God. Okay, so we're not going to look into lots of detail this morning. But let's, um, as we read it together, just give us a little bit of context Uh, As I said, Abraham has already received the promises from God, uh, the the promise that his descendants uh, will outnumber the stars in the sky, 
But the reality is, some of you will remember, his wife is unable to conceive. And so every opportunity that Abraham has to meet with God, he reminds God of this fact. You know, God, you've made these promises, but I've got no idea how you're going to fulfill them. And then God reminds him again of the promise. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 5. And so God takes Abraham outside and he says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, But Abraham drove them away. And then verse 12, this is the importance. But it says, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. And they will be enslaved and mastered there. But I will punish the nation Uh, They serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. He said, your descendants, I give you this land. And so this idea of covenant uh, is basically an agreement that cannot be broken. And as we can see in this particular covenant in Genesis 15, it's kind of a bloody slightly disturbing kind of thing. I don't know how your mind pictures this, but it's kind of more, isn't it, than a a gentleman's handshake or, you know, a gentleman's agreement. It feels a little bit more significant than that. And basically what we see happen is they take these animals, these goats and cows and doves, and they cut them in half. Okay, I don't know how the visual pictures are working for you, but they cut them in half and they put the two halves alongside each other and they kind of create this kind of bloody aisle, um, this kind of bloody pathway. Uh, And it's just wide enough for two people to walk shoulder to shoulder. Um, uh, And they, they would walk together down this bloody aisle. And if you were to break this agreement, essentially what you're saying is is that uh, if you break this agreement, you will end up like the goats and cows on the floor. Um, That's essentially what it's saying. In In Jeremiah 34, it says, those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant uh, they made before me, I will treat them like the calves. 
okay? So um, it's pretty serious. You're, you're keeping something very important in this moment. If not, you're going to end up like these animals cutting, cutting off. And so although this idea of covenant is slightly strange to our ears, it's also kind of a big deal. You know, it's kind of a, a significant thing taking place. And so this is what's happening here in Genesis 15. And it's this promise that, that, that God makes to Abraham and his descendants that they will inherit this land, that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. It's, it's this covenant that is key to the redemptive story that God is rewriting. And what we see is that God does something fairly unique. Abraham sets everything up, gets everything ready, and then God makes Abraham fall asleep. And God himself takes this covenant alone. He walks the path by himself. In nearly all other covenants in scriptures, as, as the video said, it was two people. Uh, that, and they're making a deal that neither could break. But the truth is, this covenant is so important to the redemptive nature of the story. This, this covenant is so important to seeing what has been broken reversed, that God himself takes both sides of the deal. He's like, I've got this one covered. This one's on me. And it's as if God is saying this, I will be to you as I should be, whether you are or not as you should be to me. And we see what God is doing with Abraham on this day when he makes him fall asleep and he walks the path alone. He's saying, I will be to you, Abraham, regardless of what you do regardless of how well you perform, regardless of how faithful you may remain, I'm in this. This is my commitment. He says, you know, I, I, I will be faithful. God says, I will be faithful even though I know you're going to fail. Even though looking ahead, I know you're not going to get it right. You're not going to go in the right direction. That's how committed God is in this moment at rewriting the trajectory of this story. And what we see happen throughout the Old Testament is God's ongoing commitment to redeeming and restoring what was broken in the garden. That God is making all things new. That's the narrative. That's the big story that we see. That's what God is up to. You know, even as Abraham's family expands and eventually becomes the nation of Israel, time and time again, they turn their backs on God, don't they? Time and time again, they mess things up. They, they make the wrong choices. Yet he never gives up on them. He, he never backs down on the deal that he made at this moment. One of the pictures we see of this is in the book of Hosea, uh, where God tells the prophet Hosea to marry, um, I'd say, a, a promiscuous woman. Um, we don't, don't really know, but some would say that she sold herself. Um, and, um, and, and God instructs this prophet to marry her. And, and for a moment, things go well, you know, and they, they have children and they live a life together. But eventually she is unfaithful. 
And she ends up living with another man. But he, and it doesn't end well for Hosea's wife. She, she eventually gets sold as a slave. And it's at this moment God commands Hosea to buy her back. To take his unfaithful wife and love her unconditionally. That kind of sounds really strange, doesn't it? It's a really strange thing that why would God on earth command this of Hosea? Well, Hosea's relationship with his wife, Gomer, is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. And although they are loved and chosen by God, although they are blessed to be a blessing, although they are God's covenant people that was made to their father, Abraham, they continually lived unfaithfully. They continually gave themselves to other gods and God lovingly receives them back. He receives them back. He doesn't give up on them. And the truth is, he, he doesn't give up on us. My small encouragement to us this morning as we think about this concept is that we don't just read something and it becomes information that's somewhere over there. You know, oh, that's, that's nice. You know, they cut up animals. and You know, the, the visual pictures are quite disturbing. But, you know, that it wouldn't be something that we just hold over there but actually, this would be something that we enter into. A story that we find ourselves in. That we would recognise that we, like Israel, are desperately in need of God. But at the same time, we desperately battle against God as well, don't we? We desperately need him, but we battle against him. We recognise that God wants to draw us into relationship with him and bring us back because that's what we were created for. You see, Israel uh, fails over and over and over again. And yet there's this seed of faith that God preserves in their midst. There's this drawing back uh, that then they're not going to continue in this endless loop of failure, even though it feels like that. But God is pointing towards an end uh, of a promise that he's going to provide a new way, a brand new way. And God's promise is more powerful than Israel's sin. God's promise to accomplish his purposes is more powerful than the struggles that you and I live with. God will accomplish his purposes through his people. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. God knows us, doesn't he? He knows us. He knows you, he knows me, he knows our brokenness, he knows our sin, he knows our temptations, and yet he loves and accepts us 100% on the basis of all that Jesus has done. But he doesn't do that in just some sort of transactional way. He doesn't just say, here you go, I accept you, now get on with the rest of your life. He wants to be in relationship. He wants to draw us into relationship with him. It's the very thing we were made for. We saw that, didn't we, at the beginning of the story when God creates 
humanity. He made them to be in relationship with him. And he wants us to accomplish his purposes. You know, why on earth would Tammy and I and our girls pack up our lives and move to a city like Milton Keynes? Why would we do that? Because God has a purpose for this city. God wants to do something in this place. And we're nothing special. There's nothing special about us. Ask my wife. She washes my underwear. Um, uh, There's nothing special about us. But God wants to accomplish his purposes. And he wants to use people like you and me in the process. He wants us to be part of his family. And he wants us in the family business. You see, at the core of Israel's identity was the realization that they needed God. They needed him. And that God is a God of promise. And through many twists and turns, all kinds of terrible, destructive things, God is the one persevering all the time. He's He's building them as a people of promise, a people found on his covenant with uh, their father, Abraham. God continues to work in the middle of everything and his promises are being brought forward to them. The prophets tell Israel this. They say, Israel, uh, you have a hardness of heart and you need your heart's softening. How many of us need God to soften our hearts? We need God to do that, don't we? We need God to move in our lives. The prophet Jeremiah says this to Israel. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, there's that theme again, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, God's passion is to have a family for himself and to be with us and to have us living with him and living for him. He tells the prophet Ezekiel this. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I put within you and I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. See, this was God's plan at the very beginning. This is God's plan today. And so we see this story at the end of the Old Testament with Israel, uh, uh, who have gone through these continual cycles of failure. But there's this moment of breakthrough. Something new is coming. God makes this promise with Abraham and says, this is what's going to happen. And and despite the mess, we get to this point in the story where something new's coming. In John chapter eight, Jesus says this. He says, Abraham looked forward to my day and he saw me and he rejoiced. 
You know, when God and Abraham set up that altar for the covenant to take place and God walks through it, Abraham may have thought, you know, how is God going to accomplish both the divine and human part of this covenant? How is he going to do it? And in some kind of way, I think Abraham knew that Jesus would be the one who would do it. He knew that the Messiah would come. Uh, and, and, and that's what we get to look at next time. Um, so I'm not going to steal the thunder for next time we're together. How Jesus, you know, he became the faithful Israel where Israel was not faithful. How Jesus became the one who would perfectly fulfill the covenant in Abraham's place. As the, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, Jesus is the climax of the covenant. With this express purpose to reverse the effects of all that is broken. See, that's the story that we're in. That's the, the redemptive part of this story that we've reached. And that's the story that we're invited into. We're invited into this redemptive story where God is making all things new. Just to finish up, I just want to share a little story that I came across. Some of you may remember uh, back in 1989, there was an earthquake in Armenia. Uh, it was This earthquake measured uh, 8.2. Uh, and much like the tragic news that has been coming from Turkey in the last couple of weeks, uh, within a matter of four minutes, it's estimated that 30,000 people lost their lives. That morning, a father had dropped his son off at school. His son was named Ahmed. He, he dropped his son off at school, and like he told his son every day, he said this. He says, I will not forget you. I will be back for you, and I'll always be here for you. And then he walked away, and the earthquake hit. The first thing that father thought about was his promise to his son. So the father rushes back to where the school is, and to his dismay, all he sees is piles of rubble. And people are standing around mourning and crying. And for a moment, he loses his breath. And then he has this wave of incredible grief come upon him. And he runs to where his son's classroom would have been. And there again, he's just a pile of rubble. And he begins to dig with his bare hands, taking chunks of plaster and concrete and moving them to the side. But people are like, what are you doing? It's, there's no point. They're gone. And he says, but I've promised my son I won't give up. I've promised my son I will be here. And so he continues for two hours and two hours becomes four hours and four hours becomes eight hours and then 10 hours and then 12 hours and then he just, he, he's unprepared to give up. He's like, what if my son is alive? I've made this promise to my son. I need to carry on. And he continues to dig for 36 straight hours picking up chunks of plaster and, and concrete because he made this promise to his son, because he hopes his son is still alive. And just after the 36th hour, he cries out, Ahmed. And he hears this muffled voice beneath the rubble. Papa, 
Papa. And he digs. And to his delight, he finds his son underneath the rubble. And in the process, 33 other children. And he hears his son turn to his friend and say, See, I told you my father would come for us. If there was one thing that God would have us here this morning, through these slightly peculiar stories of covenants, through the story of this character, Abraham, and through the tragedy of the story of Israel, if there's one thing that I hope God would say to us this morning, it's this. I will not forget you. I will be back for you. I'll always be here for you. And you know, no matter how dark, how desperate, how broken, how painful things become, no matter how desperate the story becomes, he will always keep his end of the deal. He'll always be there. He'll always come back. He'll always return for those who need rescuing. Those who need his mercy. Those who need his love. He'll always come back for them. He'll pick up the rubble and the the mess of our lives and invite us back to him. God committed to his end of the deal. Why don't we stand it?